Welcome. My name is Sherry Rausch, and I'm the Associate Director for the Institute of the Arts and Humanities. I'm pleased to introduce our guest for today. Armando Maggi is Professor of Italian Literature in the Department of Romance Languages and Literatures and the Committee on History of Culture at the University of Chicago. He is author of a number of books, including In the Company of Demons, Unnatural Beings, Love and Identity in the Italian Renaissance, 2006, Satan's Rhetoric, a Study of Renaissance Demonology from 2001, and Uttering the Word, the Mystical Performances of Maria Maddalena dei Pazzi, a Renaissance Visionary from 1998. Armando Maggi is also editor of Guido Casoni's Della Magia d'Amore, and the volume in the series of classics of Western spirituality on Saint Maria Maddalena dei Pazzi. In other words, Professor Maggi's important contributions shed light on that notoriously shadowy world of intellectual history that skirts religious, theological, occult, and mystical strains of early modern thought. Other areas of his work include projects on Petrarch and humanism, both Italian and comparative, on emblems in literature, on themes of Renaissance homoerotic love from Marsilio Ficino to Cesare Trevisani, and on self-commentary. He is also an accomplished literary translator from French, Portuguese, and German into Italian. His talk today is an Institute for the Arts and Humanities Moments of Change event and is co-sponsored by the Department of Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. Please join me in welcoming Professor Armando Maggi, who will speak today on the shift of Renaissance demonology in the new melancholy. Um, first of all, I want to uh, thank uh, Professor Tacconi and Professor Rausch for inviting me to the Institute for the Arts and the Humanities. I'm really honored uh, to be here. I know uh, before coming here, I was trying to find uh, how to phrase, you know, in a, in a way that wouldn't sound too um, cliched, because I'm truly honored to be here. Uh, we work so m alone every, you know, with our demons. <laughs> that is a, a special gift to be asked to share, you know, our work with others who are interested. So it's a it's a, uh, a great gift for me. Thank you. Melancholy is one of the main and most challenging themes of Renaissance studies. However, rather than mel of melancholy, we should probably speak of melancholies, because this term, in a sense like our much less inspiring depression, spans a number of different disciplines, from medicine to theology to philosophy and literature, with often contradictory meanings and interpretations. As Rafael de la Torre uh, states in De Potestate Ecclesie, a, tre a treatise that also discusses the power of exorcism, melancholy is more than one disease. He speaks of morbi melancholici, also because, according to him, the devil at times attacks his victims through a cocktail of different symptoms. In my talk today, I will try to define some of the major changes 
that this multi-layered concept undergoes from the end of the 16th century through the first decades of the 17th century. The 1612 German edition of Giovan Battista Pico della Mirandola's Strix Sive de Ludificazione Demonum, a classic of Renaissance demonology first published in 1523, is preceded by a fascinating introduction that intends to emphasize the real and dangerous existence of the supernatural. Its author, Martin Weindrich, recounts the sad story of a certain shoemaker in a Slesian town who in 1591, one morning, while he was outside in his backyard, slashed his throat so violently and with such a loss of blood that he died soon hereafter. His wife, terrified of the possible legal consequences of her husband's suicide, claimed that he had died of apoplexy. According to the wife, overwhelmed by a sudden attack of this disease, the shoemaker fell on a stone that opened his throat and caused his death. However, the ghost of the shoemaker uh, was seen several times in that town. We're talking about a shoemaker who killed himself. You know, not sure. <laughs> Dur even during the day. And when the authorities decided to exhume the corpse, they found it intact. The wound in his throat was not putrefied and showed a remarkable redness that was also visible on his right toe. In May of 1592, the judges ordered that the ex ex executioner bury the body in a different location. This time, it was also discovered that the heart of the shoemaker was intact. The ghost stopped his roaming through the streets of the city only when his corpse was finally burned. The body resisted its decomposition because more than the man's soul that showed itself without being able to interact with the other citizens of the town, it was intended, the body, it was intended to expose the scandal of suicide. The shoemaker's wife attempted to keep her husband's death under the edges of melancholy, whose most serious manifestations are in fact apoplexy and suicide. But melancholy would also free her husband from any moral responsibility. The sudden and gruesome form of this man's death seems to allude to some secret and disturbing thoughts, some persistent and lonely worries, or a sudden and overwhelming despair, some pers uh, uh, despair which he didn't even share with his wife. The man's silence before and after his death paradoxically adds a level of great humanity to his disturbing end. But it is also worth noting, and this is why I brought it up, that this story doesn't match very well with uh, Pico's Strix. It's not a good introduction. First of all, remember that Joan pa Francesco Pico's uh, book came out almost a century before Weinrich's uh, introductory story. Pico, 1469-1533 the nephew of the Neoplatonic philosopher Giovanni Pico, wrote an imaginary dialogue among two intellectuals, an inquisitor and a witch. As a response to the accusations that had been made against him, 
when, as Prince of Mirandola, he had okayed the executions of some alleged witches, in particular the priest Benedetto Berno, who, among other things, had a demonic lover, who took female forms and uh, walked with him around town. Strix recalls a medieval mise-en-scene, a sort of mystery play, in which four abstract characters debate the reality of witchcraft. Phronimus, the prudent man, succeeds in convincing Apistius, the man without faith, that witches do exist and do exert very negative effects on the creation. Phronimus demonstrates to the skeptical Apistius that all of classical culture, the very foundation of Italian humanism, is based on Satan's intervention in the creation. Pico literally believes that classical culture is the enemy's scripture. Phronimus, who in the text represents Pico's views, revisits the pillars of classical literature, philosophy, and historiography, Homer, Virgil, Pindar, Ovid, Seneca, Plato, and so on, and shows how they echo and reverse the motifs of the Christian sacred texts. An amazing example, which I don't have the time to analyze in detail, is Pico's dissection of Caesar's Gallic War. As Ed Peters writes in Witchcraft in Europe, Giovanni Francesco Pico was a humanist only technically, in that although he shared the Italian humanists' intellectual formation, he embraced a strict and deeply biased Catholicism. For a comprehensive view of Pico's philosophy, see the, his Examen Vanitatis Doctrine uh, Gentium. And uh, in the volume, the Itati Renaissance volumes, just came out the Ciceronian, Ciceronian Debates, or I think that's the title, right? Uh, where uh, there are the uh, uh, epistles that Pico exchanged with Bembo. And we have to keep in mind in, in, uh, in that volume, but what is also usually said about Pico is that he's not in favor of a strict classical uh, rhetoric. Uh, and he believes more in uh, an open uh, sort of express expression of genius. Uh, the reality that we have to keep in mind is that Pico is not in favor of classical culture, of classical rhetoric, because Cicero is basically speaking within that uh, corrupt uh, culture that is classical culture. So he wants uh, to embrace a mixture of uh, scriptures, and what is good about classical expression. Okay, this is very, very important to keep in mind. How distant is Pico's bleak discussion of the evil of Latin and Greek literature from the sorrowful account of the poor shoemaker suffering from melancholy reported at the beginning of the 17th century? What differs is not only the highly intellectual tone of Pico's treatise and the modest background of the main characters of Weinreich's tale. Although the German story fits into the 15th and 16th century genre of brief accounts of supernatural events, its mysterious nature expresses a pathos missing from Pico's dialogue and from the numerous Gothic exempla present in philosophical or religious treatises. These telegraphic tales usually emphasize the unusual, surprising eruption of the spiritual or demonic, rather than uniqueness 
rather than the uniqueness of their characters. Troves of incredible stories are from, ins for instance, Girolamo Cardano's De Rerum Varietate and Alessandro Tartagni's Genialum Diarium. Tartagni, who was also known as Alexander Ab Alexandro, narrates that one night, for example, I choose this story, one night on his way back to Rome after the burial of a dear friend who had passed away after a long uh, disease, an honest and honorable man took shelter in a hotel. Still awake in bed, this man suddenly saw his dead friend standing in front of him. The diseased looked pale and disfigured the way he was right before the burial. Without saying a word, the dead man undressed and lay in bed next to his friend, who, overwhelmed by horror, I don't know, I guess, kicked the specter away from him and withdrew to the opposite side of the bed. The ghost stood up and, collecting his clothes, disappeared in silence. But some time later, the man, the, the, the friend who is alive, became very sick and almost died. The reader of this very um, succinct story certainly senses the dead man's, the dead friend's loneliness, which reminds me or reminds us of the movie of Irgman Bergman's Cries and Whispers, I don't know if you remember, in which a dead woman, a dead sister, whimpers in bed before her burial because she says, she calls her sisters and says, it's so cold here, it's so cold. And this dead woman needs to be caressed and touched. But the real emphasis of Tartagni's story is the dreadful effect that the ghost has on his buddy, who later gets sick and almost dies. A second essential difference between the story of the shoemaker and Tartagni's anecdote are its social implications. Weinrich's account merges the supernatural aspects of the shoemaker's suicide and its political consequences. The German story is also about how the city authorities and the population in general respond to the shoemaker's death. The poor man oppressed by an unclear form of melancholy, maybe demonic, maybe physical, merely physical, as a biography made of unspoken and powerful anguish. Melancholy is a frequent and essential topic in 16th century Italian, and not only Italian, culture, but with only a few exceptions of autobiographical writings, like Montaigne or Cardano, it retains a deeply abstract uh, character. As is well known, Melancholic is a recurrent theme of Renaissance treatises of love, medical treatises, and more in general, Neoplatonic philosophy. In all these genres, melancholic is usually studied in, in its origins, symptoms, and outcomes. A first important synthesis of the contradictory nature of the melancholic humor is already present in Ficino the main point of reference for all subsequent investigations on this subject. A central concept of Ficino's view of melancholy is spirit. In Book 1, Chapter 2 of, of Three Books of Life, the Florentine philosopher states that spirit, quote, is defined by doctors as a vapor of blood, pure, subtle, a hot, 
and clear. According to his Platonic theology, Book 7, Chapter 6, the spirit is a tenuissimum corpusculum that connects body and soul. The role of the spirit is to transform the nature and, fu and function of the black bile. For Ficino, black bile, quote, is of two kinds. The one is called natural, the other comes about by burning. The second kind is always pernicious because it first excites the subject and then makes him stolid and stupid. The black bile should be tempered by blood and phlegm because they kindle the melancholic bile and thus keep it warm and bright, since the humor of melancholic resembles iron. The spirits born of this humor, Ficino continues, have the subtlety of that water called aqua vitae, which is extracted from thicker wine through distillation. Supported by these spirits, the mind, quote, quote, perseveres in investigation, in philosophical investigation, longer and seeks the center of all subjects, end of quote. This form of melancholic humor should be called candida, white, in opposition to the black one that is not tempered and bright. Therefore, we can say that the black bile is black but also white. It obscures and enlightens the mind and also energizes intellectual curiosity and insight. And now, this is important in our context to see a shift, a major shift, at the end of the uh, 16th century. Writing more than a century later, Tommaso Campanella decries Ficino's complex analysis of melancholia. Although, in my view, his corrections do not clarify the issue, the, they exemplify a very different cultural atmosphere, which is what it, it interests us today. In Book 3, Chapter 10 of the Censurerum, which he completed in 1592, and then rewrote in Italian in 1604 with the title Del Senso delle Cose, Campanella says that those who, like Ficino, believe that melancholy causes insightfulness and prophecy are dead wrong. Because melancholy, per se, is just residue of burned blood. The mixture of this humor, black humor, and blood produces, quote, horrible spirits. And if blood is not purified, brings about fears and bad thoughts. Campanella's view of spirit is not intrinsically different from Ficino's. What is different? is Campanella's emphasis on what the spirit does. It's the same spirit, but the two philosophers emphasize two different things. For Campanella, the universe exists as an emanation of God's luminous warmth. The spirit is the stuff the anima sensitiva is made of. Spiritus is an attenuated degree of celestial warmth which exists within matter for example, human body, but not on human body, also stones or plants. And that thanks to its extreme subtleness and mobility, it is able to come out of the material shell that contains it and perceives reality and is affected by external ammutazioni, that is, external alterations. In Campanella, spirit is considered primarily for its role within the economy of the body. 
According to Campanella, man whose organism is full of this infected spirit love dark places, like cemeteries, of course, and are often possessed by demons. Moreover, it is not surprising to see that the purgative medicine of the spleen, so looking at melancholia from an actual me uh, medical point of view, the vase, the, the spleen is the vase that collects the black bile and whose goal is to purify blood. The medicine of the sp spleen often heals possessed people, not because demons, and these are the, the detractors of Campanella's view, not because demons do not exist, but because the spleen is where the negative effects of melancholia are generated. On the contrary, quote, bright and pure spirits are often the place of angels' residence. In Campanella's eloquent words, if, quote, the human spirit is bright, subtle, and mobile, his mind resides in him as light resides in the air. The melancholic person is able to foresee the future only because his clear and mobile spirits are more capable of catching the movements within the air. I'd like to stress two main points of Campanella's description of melancholy. Campanella writes really at the end of the 16th century, the beginning of the 17th century. First, Campanella shifts the focus from the subject's intellect, which in Florentine neoplatonic philosophy was the active center of a process of self-enlightenment, to the physical aspects of the phenomenon called melancholy. Campanella's philosophy of nature is very distant from Giordano Bruno's, just to mention another famous uh, natural philosopher. Campanella wishes to harmonize modern sciences. Remember, for example, his, his strong defense of Galileo and Catholic counter-reformation. Campanella contends that modern sciences disclose the glory of God. For Campanella, melancholy is first and foremost something that happens to the subject. Notice also the radical difference between Florentine Neoplatonic view, the Florentine Neoplatonic view and Campanella's concept of angels and demons. In Campanella's analysis of melancholy, angels and demons reflect the renewed Catholic insistence on the degraded and ephemeral nature of the flesh and the created world in general, versus the transcendental reality of the divine, which erupts in the base human world through his luminous messengers, but also his dark executioners. That's the way Campanella calls them, the demons. Campanella distinguishes between two kinds of prophecy. One, the prophecy of the melancholic person who, like the Sibyls, cannot remember its content because it take the, this kind of uh, insight takes place in the spirits that soon exhale from the body, and therefore the person does not remember anything. The second kind of a pro uh, a prophecy is the prophecy granted by God, and this kind of prophecy occurs in the soul and therefore cannot be forgotten. Campanella's emphasis on the limited physiological nature of melancholic prophecy reflects a more general transformation in Renaissance philosophy between the end of the 16th century the beginning of, and the beginning of the 17th century. This is particularly detectable in the so-called Trattati d'Amore, 
a major philosophical and literary genre of the Italian Renaissance. Toward the end of the 16th century, the basic tenets of Ficinian Neoplatonism are read in the light of the new idiom of Catholic Reformation. This is a truly fascinating rhetorical and philosophical phenomenon that still awaits a comprehensive analysis which would dispel some persistent incorrect interpretations. <coughs> treatises of love, treatises on alchemy and hermetic knowledge, academic discourses on melancholia and inner enlightenment also through demons are still today read as late repetitions of well-known Platonic concepts, when in reality, beneath a veneer of Platonic jargon, they pursue a radically new agenda. See, for example, Tommaso Garzoni's academic speech called, entitled, L'Uomo Astratto, 1604, which follows the structure and rhetoric, choice of citations, philosophical references, of a clear and orthodox Ficinian product. Garzoni is the author of numerous erudite bestsellers, such as the Piazza Universale, for, for example, which exerted a significant influence on other European literatures. For example, Balthazar Gracian's uh, difficult novel, El Criticon. <coughs> In the short Uomo Astratto, after analyzing the different levels of possible intellectual enlightenment and different forms of melancholia, according to what sounds like Florentine Platonic philosophy, for example, there is a structure, this is a genre, Dante's Paradiso, to describe the levels of, of you know, ascending to God, uh, and then quotations from Ficino's Theologia Platonica, and then certain poets, so certain 16th century poets, popular poets like uh, Guidiccioni, we, who we do not read today, uh, anymore, but it was a very popular reference within this context. At the end of this dense but concise text, and totally unexpectedly uh, to the reader, the reader does not expect this, at the very end of this little book, Garzoni reveals that only Jesus Christ was able to achieve the highest level of insight. Very far from what Ficino would say. And that, and uh, only the Eucharist may grant human beings that closeness to Christ and therefore that we need for our salvation but also for our final uh, uh, enlightenment after, after death. In his dialogue, just to mention another example, Torquato Tasso reads Ficino, the same kind of language, through Thomas Aquinas. <coughs> but another, a final, a better known, I suppose, example is Don Quixote in which Cervantes reads Leone Ebreo's Dialoghi d'Amore in the light of the Augustinian Cristobal de Fonseca's Trattato dell'Amor de Dios. Um, this is what Cervantes, in the prologue of the Don Quixote, the friend and Cervantes, the friend suggests that if he wants uh, to say something about love, he can go either with Leone Ebreo or Cristobal de Fonseca. And, but the title, Trattato dell'Amor de Dios, seems to be so totally out of place. Uh, even though, in reality, Il Trattato dell'Amor de Dios opens with the sentence, according to Ficino, as Ficino says in his commentary 
and so on and so forth, and a reference to Plato's symposium, so at the very, at the very beginning. Um, and so we still believe that Leon Ebreo, we know that Cervantes had sort of had done this kind of cut and paste uh, um, borrowing from Leon Ebreo in the Galatea. And that is also a sign, a very clear sign, of this kind of cultural moment, stealing without, without commentary, without uh, elaborating on it. Um, and so we tend to think that Leon Ebreo and his book, which was published in 1535, was read and appropriated the same, in the same way, the way he was read in 1535, and the same way it was uh, uh, read in, at the beginning of the 17th century. <coughs> Just to give you an example, uh, is we can read Don Quixote's moving words commentary on the story of Basilio, who had succeeded in convincing Quiteria to marry him by pretending to be close to death. And Don Quixote says, No se pueden ni deben llamar engaños los que ponen la mira en virtuosos fines. And then, uh, I, I cut the quotations, uh, el amor, this is the part that is important, el, uh, Don Quixote says, porque el amor es todo alegría y contento, y más cuando el amante está en posesión de la causa amada. This is a direct quotation from Leon Hebreo, right? Contra quien son enemigos opuestos y declarados la necesidad y la pobreza. La, uh, poverty and necessity are clear enemies of love. This passage echoes Leon Hebreo, the myth of Poro and Peña. In Cristobo de Fonseca we read, Aristóteles afirma que el deseo y la codicia nacen de la pobreza y de la necesidad. A great difference is detectable between Fici Fonseca and the Renaissance treatise of love. For Ficino and Leone Ebreo, poverty, la pobreza, is an essential part of the love ex experience because poverty is the mother of love. It's not its enemy. It's not the enemy of love. This is the way also Tasso reads it. Also Tasso says what Cristobal de Fonseca says and Don Quixote says. This is not Ficino. <coughs> Ficino and his followers contend that no human institution, including marriage, as you remember, only Leone Ebreo mentions uh, the, um, the uh, ma marriage as a, as a positive um, union, and even in its sexual connotations. Uh, can eradicate, nothing can eradicate poverty from human love. As far as the main topics of my talk today are concerned, it is obvious that the transformation of Florentine Neoplatonic philosophy into an astute rephrasing of Christian theology also means that an essential concept such as Platonic melancholy, in all its contradictory aspects, disease that brings its victim down or set, the sp uh, or set of spirits that takes to take the soul up to the divinity is severely questioned and eventually discarded. This is a fundamental importance, is of, uh, of a fundamental importance when we look at the 17th century literary appropriations of the topos of the enlightened melancholic. It comes as no surprise that it is in this new cultural and religious context the central concept of demon, as well, is read in a different way. 
Let us recall first what demon was in Renaissance philosophy, Renaissance Neoplatonic philosophy. And so Girolamo Cardano offers the cl clearest uh, understanding and explanation of this. In the Rerum Varietade, which was also a bestseller of 16th century culture, and in his original, truly modern autobiography, The Book of My Life, Cardano says that Christian theology has overlooked the infinite variety of demonic creatures, in that like <coughs> human beings or animals, demons differ from each other according to their wisdom, qualities, and natural propensities. In the chapter on the demons' names in, para in Paralipomenon, Girolamo Cardano draws up a detailed list of demonic creatures, specter, genius, demon, lar, lemur, which seems uh, this list seems to recall Apuleius' classification of demons in the god of Socrates. But in reality, Cardano's taxonomy signifies different forms of vision. A demon is a form of sight. It's, not, it's less an actual entity than a way of seeing things. From the mere appearance of something, like demon, to the final unveiling of an inner coincidence between human and demonic identity, lemur, as the representation and the revelation of one's own face. And if, we if you want, we can talk about this. For Cardano, demons are less external entities than faculties, residing in the subject's mind, but independent from the mind itself. Demons are the reflections of our sight, in, that se in the sense that demons are at once the manifestation and the exegesis of what we see. That sight is the primary and exclusive channel through which demons are able to corrupt human creatures was also the view of the notorious Maleus Maleficarum, but with a deeply different connotation. In part, with a deeply different connotation, in part two, question one, chapter nine, we read that a demon, quote, can draw out some images from memory, which is in the back part of the head, and then locally moves the phantasm to the middle part of the head, where are the cells of the imagination, and finally to the sense of reason, which is in the front of the head. In other words, demon, a demon causes a mental confusion. If we keep in mind Aristotle's De Anima, according to which one cannot think without images, an even more disturbing dynamic, the demonic trick is the so-called aurasia, or partial blindness. That is the censorship of a part of what a person is actually seeing. I will not get into the problem of how a bodiless creature can move something physical or quasi-physical as phantasms, because phantasms are impressions imprinted in the mind. So they are pretty physical. <coughs> According to Sylvester Prierio's De Strigi Magis, uh, 1521, <coughs> demons affect the agent intellect, that is, the part of the mind that abstracts the intelligible forms offered to the possible intellect. So it's only the higher part, the abstractions, that can be manipulated. At the beginning of the 17th century, the visual distortion generated by demons uh, becomes the pernicious faculty of love itself. So very distant from the platonic love. Now love and a demonic uh, distortion are many times synonyms.
because both are perceived as a disturbance of reason, that is, forms of melancholy. In Luca Belli's Commento sopra il convito di Platone, commentary on Plato's Symposium, 1614, we read that Socrates' demon is, in fact, in fact our guardian angel who supports and accomp accompanies us through life. And in a sense, this is what the demon did you know, for Socrates. It is this benevolent demon that protects us from the demon of love, which is an insane conspiracy, pazzo intrico. And there are some of you who are nodding and say, I know all about it. And the sword <laughs> of reason, the only the sword of reason can break. Throughout the 17th century, Italian literature, uh, throughout the 17th century Italian literature, the insanity of love is strictly co connected to the sins of pride and lust, whose symptoms recalls an acute form of melancholy. Consider, for instance, Roland's folly in Canto 23 of Ariosto's Orlando Furioso. We are still at the beginning of the 16th century. The hero's painful love is certainly marked by a violent rage that obfus obfuscates all his senses. For example, stanza uh, 133, in tanta rabbia, in tanto furor venne che rimase offuscato in ogni senso. But these disturbed reactions do not derive from a frustrated pride, which instead is seen by most 17th century writers as the primary source of sensual love. Sensual love is a form of pride. While while Calderon de la Barca, still in two versions of the Auto Sacramental Psychis y Cupido, reads Cupid as a synonym for divine love, in Lucrezia Marinella's mythic poem in octaves, Amore innamorato e impazzato, Love in Love and Out of His Mind, first, <laughs> first edition 1598, second edition 1618, with the author's uh, self-commentary. Cupid is a young and spoiled Satan who, in Canto 1, stanza 8, states that he is superior to the father of the gods, Jupiter, because he is the one who determines Jupiter's lascivious conduct. When Mercury wounds Cupid with one of his own arrows, the young demon falls in love with a nymph who rejects his advances and frustrates his prideful ego, thus leading uh, the poor demon into a profound melancholy or depression. Uh, the symptoms are pretty close. Desire to sleep, unsettling or falsely reassuring dreams, profound nausea when he wakes up, unexpected moments of unjustified elation or, and hope, devastating rage against whole human beings and gods, including his mother, who cannot alleviate his plight, which will eventually doom him to eternal exile from the gods. When Marinella writes that the picture of Cupid with a bandage on his eyes or his eyes signifies a man who refuses to look at the sensual images of the world, typical Baroque uh, image, uh, um, in a sense, Marinella is rephrasing what Sprenger says in the Maleus Maleficarum about the demon's manipulation of external and internal images. 
The answer to the possible invasion of images it to, is to keep one's eyes shut and feeds on God's blankness. Instead of nourishing the subject, the images from a world considered at the end of the Italian Renaissance as a kaleidoscope of sins set the mind on fire and then abandon the mind in ashes. See the picture of melancholy in Ripa's Iconologia, that starting from its second edition in 1603 was accompanied by figures. Malinconia is depicted as an elderly lady sitting on a stone with her hands on her knees and looking downcast as if she were contemplating on a small stone in front of her in a position of both despair and numbness. Remember the shoemaker in the introduction to the German edition of Pico's Strix, who according to his wife had fallen on a stone and slit his throat accidentally. A similar silence pervades the image of the despondent old lady with a dry tree behind her. The stone on which she's sitting, Ripa says, quote, demonstrates that the melancholic person is rigid, sterile of words and of deeds for herself and for others. A sterile, silent, or silenced and defeated body is also the body of the possessed person who becomes foreign to herself after the demon's invasion. Johann Weyer, author of the seminal De Prestigis Demonum, states that a case of natural melancholy can soon turn into a form of demonic possession. Weyer contends that although not every melancholic person is possessed by the devil, every possessed person is a melancholic. And as we shall see in a moment, Cervantes offers an unforgettable interpretation of melancholic in the Licenciado Vidriera, published in 1613 uh, in Novelas Ejemplares. But before turning to Cervantes, it is worth examining another essential 17th century cultural phenomenon, the innumerable encyclopedic volumes of compilations, taxonomies, anthologies uh, that mark the passage from the Renaissance to the new Baroque sensibility. These usually lengthy texts serve as archives of a crystallized cultural knowledge and thus also initiate its ultimate dismissal. A central text, and actually a very beautiful one, in the history of demonic melancholy is Thesaurus Exorcis Morum by the Italian inquisitors Valerio Polidori and Girolamo Menghi, which came out in 1608. This volume is not only the most important collection of treatises on exorcism ever published in Europe, it is also a complex meditation on the relationship between body and soul, between language and flesh, between melancholy and demonic presences. This volume is at once practical and theoretical. Thesaurus Exorcismorum contains two books written by Girolamo Menghi, Flagellum Demonum and Fustis Demonum, uh, both texts had been previously published as independent books in 1578 and 1589. And there are four more books that I will not uh, quote now, it's too long. The historical relevance of the Thesaurus, altogether 1,272 pages, excluding indexes, derives also from the fact that before this imposing book, very few transcriptions of exorcisms had come out as autonomous publications. Of great importance is, of course, 
the description of a possible exorcism in the Maleus, Maleficarum, although this exorcism still retains the character of a medieval demonic adjuration, and it is thus interesting less for its formal and literary structure than for its legal status within the vast range of possible treatments against diabolical assaults. The six treatises collected in the Thesaurus must be read as interdependent texts on the healing art of substituting silence with voice, the deaf and mute occurrence of chaotic signs with a set of meanings structured as a sermonic discourse based on two essential devices, repetition and variation. Remember that, uh, remember that in Rafael de la Torre's definition, melancholy is an umbrella term for several chaotic, contradictory illnesses. Repetition and variation are, are the rhetorical devices that aim to restore a physical and intellectual order in a possessed person's confused and silenced identity. I cannot offer a detailed analysis of the thesaurus, but I will only mention two important aspects that concern melancholy. In his Complementum Artis Exorcistica, one of the texts of the thesaurus, Zaccaria Visconti holds that there are three kinds of words. Threefold is language. The first kind is the language of deed, the second is the language of the voice, and the third is the language of the mind. God speaks with the language of the action. Human creatures speak with the language of the voice, and angels and fallen angels speak with the language of the mind. The language of angels is here. We could say that according to Visconti, whereas God speaks existence or, or being itself, humans speak the memory of being. More than speaking, speech, spiritual creatures collect, modify, shift humans', remember, humans remembrances in order to affect our minds in beneficial or negative manners. Indeed, in the Complementum, Visconti states that the final goal of every exorcism is to impose silence on the devil. Taciturnitas demoni, imponenda est. The melancholy affecting a possessed person is a chaos of symptoms and is due to a disruption of the normal structure of time. The demon brings back and manipulates a set of memories sitting in the back of the victim's mind. You remember the Maleus Maleficarum. From here to here. <coughs> the victim is flooded with past images and with the emotions connected to these images, as if their violence and the shock of those images were taking place now. It is a sort of sudden disclosure, a sudden realization that silences the victim with a rush of paralyzing feelings. Remember the shoemaker's sudden suicide, and in Ripa's book, the wide open eyes of the downcast elderly lady contemplating a stone. A stone which is a symbol of sterility, but is also a symbol of cohesion. A cohesion that lacks from the lady's mind now. The healing core of an exorcism is an act of remembrance. 
Since evil originally manifested itself as the fallen angel's withdrawal from being, God is being, and withdrawing from being is falling into non-being, is denial of God, what is the meaning of the devil's present assault, the assault that is taking place now? The exorcist's healing voice repeats that, in fact, Satan has always been an absence in the world. He's always been exiled. That is, his disturbing and unclear manifestations in the melancholic person's physicality do not make sense at all. That they are tricks played in the victim's mind, since in reality, what the fallen angel says and does is always an absence. The sense of being exiled from presence is the primary feeling of melancholy and of the melancholy person. In a truly fascinating passage of the compendium, I want to read this one, Visconti reports a perentorium, a juridical expression that can be translated as conclusive argument denying any further debate, in which the exorcist transfers <coughs> the symptoms of melancholy from the victim to the demon. Since it is the demon who is banned from God's presence, not the possessed person. And so these are the words of the exorcist. Until you, perverted insect, delay your departure, fever will plague you, your spirit will burn, confusion and lethargy will burden you, apoplexy, paroxysm, migraine, and every sort of pain will exhaust you. Epilepsy will possess your substance, melancholy will possess your spirit, folly will possess your mind and intelligence. These powerful words and the complex and original rituals in which they are pronounced, which will be soon rejected by the church, mirror their cultural and historical time. The long and convoluted descriptions in the Thesaurus which read like stage directions for mag magniloquent Baroque mise-en-scenes, highlight two essential points. First, the great importance given to the body, which is the main character and the main site of all contrasts between good and evil, reflecting the Counter-Reformation's fundamental emphasis on the flesh. In these exorcisms, the body actively responds to the battle between two opposite armies. The body is the hero that survives a long and excruciating martyrdom. And as in a Baroque hagiographic play, there are many, uh, Tesauro and Calderon and so on, he appears on stage at the end of the play in all its luminosity, is the saint appearing. The body wins because his diseases are transferred onto the demon's identity, which, is also, which also betrays strong physical connotations. The second essential point is, that, is the centrality of memory. We could say that the removal of melancholia from the victim's body to the demon's identity is a new art of memory in which the subject heals insofar as she recalls the intrinsically harmonious and divine order of things as the history of salvation has progressively disclosed in the scriptures. Melancholy is thus a disturbed or erased memory. The subject lives in the silence of a perennial and obscure present. It is memory that gives consistency, so to speak, to the subject. Remember that according to Weyer, 
Some melancholics at times feel that their body is like a lump of clay. This body has the porosity of clay. It is open to abuse. And Weyer uses the word ludibria, which indicates a sort of similarity between the abuse, the sexual abuse uh, against a woman, and the demonic abuse of his victims. And recall Cervantes's description of the young melancholic Tomas Rodaja in Licenciato Vidriera, who after drinking a love potion and a sudden and violent illness, feels that his body is made of glass and begs people not to come too close to him because he's too fragile. The young man's body, I, don't read the, I won't read the quotation, is made of the purest form of melancholia. If we remember what Ficino says about the distillation of black humor, Thomas's body is not even a body any longer. It is a still in an alchemical laboratory. What is also relevant is that this young man speaks through citations and aphorisms as if he were reading from a silva. The harshness of his words is in contrast with the fragility of his body that is made of glass. But the reality is that neither his brittle and transparent body nor his severe moral sayings and citations belong to him. We could go so far as to say that the birth of modernity also corresponds to the abandonment of the Renaissance concept of melancholy. It is the birth of a new interiority, of a, a new inner landscape. Therefore, the numerous 17th century compilations, taxonomies, encyclopedias, such as Burton's monstrous uh, Anatomy of Melancholy, 1621, the first edition, signify a final departure from a previous culture that is slowly acquiring an archaeological character. The end of the 16th century and the first decades of the 17th century is a time where multiple cultural idioms coexist and overlap. It is a time of confusion, if you will, a time that hails new beginnings, but also recapitulates and mourns past cultures. In the first part of his immense book, explaining how God and the good and the fallen angels can cause melancholia, Burton puts together a patchwork of citations from 16th century authors such as Cardano, Alexander, Ab Alexandro, whom I mentioned earlier, but also and primarily from Strozzi Cigogna's Palagio degli Incanti, the Palace of Marvels, 1605, a lengthy taxonomy of all forms of spirits, from the ones described in co classical culture to the fallen angels of Christian theology. According to Cigogna's introductory summary, book one is on God and his creation, book two discusses the existence of the spirits, especially the good, this good spirits, but this is not the case. Book three analyzes the legions of the sp fallen spirits, and book four moves from the heavenly creatures down to the human race. But this is not the structure of the book. Uh, the, far, the fourth section, the final part, analyzes how devils interact with men and women. The final part of the Palagio, Palagio after describing all the form of Greek and Latin spirits, fallen angels, and this and that, also from <coughs> different perspectives, <coughs> is a treatise on demonology, similar to the Maleus Maleficarum. Um, and all classical 
views of spirits are subsumed under the new and simplified view of spiritual creatures according to Christian theology. Like Burton's masterpiece, Chigonia's Palagio is also a vast compilation of secondhand, of secondhand information, and it is a sort of ironic, uh, ironic that Burton's mosaic of quotations comes from a book that is also deeply derivative. In conclusion, let us go back to the poor shoemaker and his sudden and silent suicide. We could read the sad and reserved story of this man as a powerful response to all 16th century abstract theories of what melancholia is, what it does, and whence it comes, and when it derives. The beginning of the 17th century announces a new and contradictory approach to melancholia. This is the time of Hamlet, Don Quixote, and the young licenciado Vidriera. Vidriera. The presence of demons behind Hamlet's vision of, the fa of his father, or the young Spanish student, he becomes sick only after drinking a magical, so-called magical potion, is only a possibility and a remote one. After losing their platonic and classical background, demons now are characters of religious events and of highly theatrical exorcisms soon doomed to oblivion. At the same time, melancholia becomes part of a sweeping archaeological synthesis. In other words, melancholia becomes incarnate, so to speak, the moment it begins to, dis to disappear. It depends again, it depends again from the perspective that you use. Because if you read madness from a religious point of view, and so how do you, for example, how does a, a, a mad, insane person go and confess his sins? What do you do with that? Okay. Uh, it, it is really a matter of perspective. And what I find interesting is that the references, this kind of superficial references like Hamlet saying, well, is this uh, something that comes from demons? What is this, you know, at the beginning of the Hamlet, is it does feel as more and more as an archaeological knowledge. The melancholy that we know studying Ficino and music, the influence of music on, melan uh, on, on melancholy and so on, um, more and more the uh, birth of modern science will slowly uh, sort of put aside this. Although, uh, there is a, a book at, toward the end of the 17th century, a German, uh, actually it was a dissertation in a German university in medicine. And the student is a big dissertation tome, uh, tries to uh, blend, you know, bring together demonic possession and medicine, saying, okay, this kind of symptom is only physical. This other symptom is demonic. So still, still in 17-something, uh, I don't remember, but I studied and I have it at home, we still uh, have remnants of this kind of uh, culture. I only know about Leone Ebreo, 
and, and so Leon Hebreo uses two languages, as you know, and, uh, and he, uh, as far as I understand, he wants to fit into the, uh, you know, the Platonic you know, philosophy with some uh, major uh, differences like marriage and sex which is sex is banned, you know, from Neoplatonic philosophy, whereas Leon Hebreo sort of celebrates uh, marriage, okay? It, that, I, I think, comes from a Jewish perspective. And so it's a kind of a, a unique view uh, from, uh, from that point of view. But this is why also uh, Neoplatonic philosophy was doomed uh, because, it, yes, I mean, uh, it was sterile. You can go uh, at the moment in which you deny reality, you have no dialogue with reality uh, in the body and so on. I mean, the body has a very powerful and positive uh, role in uh, Neoplatonic philosophy because it's the luminosity that comes out of the uh, um, um, the luminous is actually a technical term that comes out of the beloved bo beloved's body. And so play, that is the first step toward uh, your uh, trip to, to heaven. And so, um, but besides that, you know, there is no discussion. You go no, it's a kind of a dead end, and uh, so they, they go no way. And this is why also I, I, I hoped I emphasized enough, you know, the distinction between Ficino and Campanella. Campanella studied Ficino because you had to at the time, but at the same time, Campanella embraced Telesio who was another philosopher who had a very concrete and material kind of approach to reality. The universe is based on hot and cold. This is Telesius philosophy, essentially, okay? And Campanella, the young Campanella said that he had a great insight the moment when he was very young and read um, uh, Telesio, and this so you have Ficino. Campanella is a kind of uh, also himself is a patchwork, you know, contradictory kind of philosopher because he's, he has Ficino, he uses Ficino's spirit, but he's also Telesio who um, um, doesn't know exactly what to do with the soul, the concept of the soul and the concept of spirit, you know, uh, and so also to stay within the Christian uh, environment, you have to posit something that is external to the spirit, and so it's God's gift of the soul that is totally independent from the spirit and, and the body, although the spirit many times play the role of a quasi-soul, so to speak, so it's a kind of confusing. How do you locate Bruno in this picture? How do I locate Bruno? It's very it's very, uh, it's very distant. Bruno, in a sense, like Campanella, um, finds himself still within the pre-modern world. And so, but it's very distant from Campanella. Campanella does not emphasize the power of the subject, of the self, to attain the divinity. This is not Campanella's view. Campanella is uh, truly, he truly believes in, uh, in uh, ca uh, the Catholic, you know, Catholic theology. And he believes, uh, I mean, if you think that he spent most of his life in jail, 
he truly believed in this and in the beauty of the universe. And uh, uh, I find so many interesting connections between what Campanella says and also what the present Pope, uh, Benedict. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the big scandal that happened in Rome where he uh, had been invited to give the opening lecture for the, you know, the academic year by um, the uh, president <coughs> of the university. And then the um, many scientists attacked you know, uh, him. And finally, Benedict did said, OK, uh, he, he sort of uh, decided not to go. And the idea, the essential idea is, does the universe have a moral foundation or not. And for Campanella, Campanella who sided with Galileo, he found no real contrast. He, I mean, he wrote this beautiful apology in jail. And he was, I mean, uh, you know, when Galileo was going through the trial and stuff. So, <coughs> uh, and um, he doesn't find any contrast. But, but Ratzinger, mm, the scientist, the Italian scientist, um, sort of made a, a very clear reference to a passage from uh, Ratzinger, one of Ratzinger's book. I don't remember now the title. It's about Europe and the final turn of Europe, you know, the loss of Christianity. I don't remember, but I have it at home. And there, uh, Ratzinger says that um, uh, for many scholars, Galileo is basically the first step toward the atomic bomb. Galileo and the atomic bomb. And so it's, it is the, still the question that Campanella is sure of the fact that science cannot contradict uh, God's wisdom. There is no way they can. Um, and so I find it very interesting, you know. I'm not okay, I know nothing about it. And okay. I no, no. I, <laughs> I mean, I know about a little bit about, you know, the interaction between music and uh, and um, and uh, Ficino and Campanella, but I'm not an expert in, in music. Uh, so with the visual arts, are there any in particular what in the I see it <coughs> I see before you know rather than actually seeing the, the content side, I see it like in the um, uh, depiction of the body because this is what the central like El Greco that I believe really embodies, you know, the 17th century, this 17th century. Okay, so there you have a body is that is at the same time dark and luminous. Uh, you know, the, uh, so or Caravaggio already, you know. So in that, I, I would find more than, uh, more than actual sort of um, descriptions of the melancholic person. And perhaps idea of oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are so many threads, and yes, it, it's a, a beautiful moment. I have to say, if I can say this as a footnote, it was pretty challenging for me, uh, and I, because I, you know, it was it, uh, to prepare this talk, it was it was uh, very useful for me because um, I was forced <laughs> by you guys to <laughs> really think about what happens at this point, and I sensed that there was a way that I could actually you know, pull it off. But I wasn't sure. I mean, it was just a sixth sense. So it is a very uh, powerful and interesting moment.
No. Uh, in a, okay. Mm -hmm. Of course. Oh, this, yes. I'm. I, I'm aware of that. It's a big issue. That uh, the uh, the um, 16th century Neoplatonic interiority was first of all deeply abstract. Point number one. Uh, references to melancholy were very bookish and primarily philosophical, medical, with ex with uh, some exceptions like Montaigne or Cardano who speak about that. And also the intervention of demonic creatures that allowed the uh, Neoplatonic philosopher to move through stages of sight. Okay, it was highly. Um, at this moment, uh, I see that the new culture, the uh, Don Quixote, the uh, Licenciado Vidriera, uh, the uh, Hamlet, uh, they are sort of appropriating the 16th century concepts and manipulating them into something that is not theologically charged, that is more closer, more and more to the lay culture that is arising at the time. It's a moment of transition, so to speak. It's a transition. I don't want you to, uh, to linger on this too much because it's a, you know, at the 16, in the 16th century, Campanella himself is still a sort of um, a poet, if we look at him as a poet, backward. He's still speaking, he has beautiful poems on his spirits that visit him and so on. This is a moment of transition, so it doesn't mean that uh, it's a pervasive, already it's given, it's a sort of a given. It would be very different if your poet wrote about this in the 18th century. This is, a, this is still a moment in which, for example, I spoke about Cristobal de Fonseca, you know. Cristobal de Fonseca, El Tratado del Amor de Dios, this title, this title, at, at the beginning, at, at the moment he writes, okay, at the, the end of the 16th century, the beginning of the 17th century, speaking of love, the Fonseca still feels that he has to make references to Leone Ebreo, Ficino, Plato, and all this stuff. And he's still, however, reading these people according in the light of his background, that is Christian, Catholic, but he feels that he has to deal with them. Yes. Yes, you would still have to deal with this because this is a knowledge in which probably your poet, uh, Fonseca, ciao, uh, grew up with. That was her, their formation, and so they still had to deal with this. But um, just a few decades later, we have many treatises on God's love. No reference to Plato is necessary at that point. Okay? It's, it's gone. It's, it, it's that, that moment, for example, reference to, yes, they make references to Plato's symposium. Um, what am I talking, what am I uh, thinking now about? Um, it will come just in a moment. But it's like in the middle of the book, and it's uh, a secondhand citation from Augustine. So that is already gone. It, it, uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm explaining myself. It's sort of, it's, uh, what I find a little bit problematic is that um, 
we must acknowledge that uh, what Cervantes, for example, does in the prologue, uh, when he puts together Leone Breo and Cristobal de Fonseca, il, his friend, he's putting together these two names, they are not in opposition. They're not. Because I mentioned Luca Belli, for example, that book on uh, Plato's Symposium, the commentary on Plato's Symposium. This is a generalized jargon language at the time in which Cervantes knew, of, of course, Ficino and everything very well. But at the same time, he's a, he's a son of his time. I mean, he's not, he cannot cling to Ficino without without considering what's going on today. And when he mentions these two books, these bo two books complement each other. Fonseca quotes Leon Ebreo, Ficino, Plato, all these people. So from, from that other perspective, and also what I mentioned before, the fact that in the Galatea, uh, Cervantes steals, you know, chunks, okay? That is also a sign of this time. It's also, there are other, other treatises of love in the Italian tradition, like Casoni that Sherry just mentioned, the Armagia d'Amore, they do the exactly the same thing. Because it's a moment of summary, of final, and so pieces put together. And if you want to understand like Casoni, you have to uh, realize that he's stealing. He's putting, to, it's a young man's book on love, and it's full of, of stolen quotations. So what Cervantes does in Galatea is not against, it's not a unique uh, s uh, phenomenon. It's part of the time. And so I think that uh, um, um, it's just, uh, um, it is important to uh, be aware of this, you know, what's going on at the end of the century. Right. Um, I wanted to give the, um, sort of the general view of this phenomenon. And uh, mm, also from a point of view, yes, you have a good point in, tem in terms of the censored books. But I still think that um, uh, that would not contradict what I said in, in th at this point. Uh, it is a major shift that uh, the list or the practice of uh, censoring books and the index would not contradict at all. I think that this is a very clear phenomenon um, in terms of uh, transforming this cultural moment. I don't know. I never thought about that. I have to say, no, no, I'm just thinking. I, I'm, I'm not really, um, um, I, I have to say, I think that Freud's uh, views are also archaeological to a, a large extent. The, what the connection that I can see is on the power of memory, of bringing back what actually happened, the trauma, you know, the childhood and so on, and staging, you know, the trauma as a fight between father and mother and so on. So I think that that would be, you know, and then, and uh, speaking of, repetition, the idea that uh, analysis is an ongoing, infinite, and expensive procedure <laughs> that <laughs> will end when you die. Okay, so it where you repeat, actually, you repeat and you tell your story many, many times with different emphasis, right? 
So the way that the exorcist does, he wants to make sure that the demon gets it. Please. Yeah, that it's also internal, but it's also external. Here we have to, you have to go back. Basically, this is a, a view of the demon from a classical point of view, okay? So the demon, the daimon of Socrates, uh, was not a negative presence. It was the one who told him, don't do this, okay? So he was, in a sense, what uh, Bailey says, a kind of guardian angel, okay, to follow. But, uh, but um, uh, in the in the Neoplatonic, you know, appropriation, that uh, what happens is that um, since uh, Neoplatonic philosophy is based on the idea of a journey upward toward, you know, final enlightenment, encounter with the, with God, uh, these demons, these creatures, uh, serve, you know, the purpose of in uh, offering, granting different forms of insight. Okay, so a, a gradual moving upward. And this is what Cardano says. Um, so they're not, this is also why this philosopher says uh, it's not uh, true what Christian theology says, that there are only good and bad uh, angels, but there are a variety like animals, like men and women, there is a big variety of behaviors. Um, so I don't know if I'm making, uh, no, right. Well, you know, there. On the one hand, the, there is the idea of uh, prophecy that Campanella speaks about. You can have a prophecy that takes place in uh, in the spirits, so it goes away. It's uh, merely physical, but also God can enlighten uh, us, and He says through angels, through both the executioners, the, uh, the demons, but also the angels, the good angels. Now, what happens is that um, it, it the form of communication, as I said, is still, this goes back to Thomas Aquinas, is the idea that the uh, spiritual creature basically moves the images or pieces of images that you have in your mind and brings uh, up to your, first to your imagination, and so they put he puts them together, it's, uh, you know, it's not true that an angel has wings, okay? It, you know, that is, uh, you could say that the angel has put together, like, the wings that you have seen of a bird somewhere, and they are imprinted in your memory, and the figure of a young uh, virgin or, uh, you know, youth, and so on and so forth. It puts together these images, and it brings them up to your mind. So it depends on what the images do to you. And maybe this is going back to Freud also. You know, the, what is, because a fallen angel, uh, you know, according to what uh, the Maleus Maleficarum says, but also the Thesaurus Exorcis Morum, is puts together these images in order to confuse you. Okay, chaos, creating chaos. And uh, for those of us, who are Catholic, the idea that the past is past. Don't linger on that. And this is exactly, you know, you confess, you, your conscience is clear, and you move on. The, the demons e do exactly the opposite. The guilt, the sense of being a failure, of having failed, this is what these uh, theologians at the time, 
in uh, repeat you know, from, uh, from uh, Aquinas, and in the Maleus Maleficarum is clear about this, that, this, uh, that the, um, the demon recreate that kind of, um, it's a form of abuse, and that's why, you know, uh, Weyer, Johannes Weyer, that I mentioned, um, uh, says, uses the word ludibria, because it recreates, it brings you back to a moment of shock or abuse or uh, a deeply wounding moment that you experienced uh, in the past and puts together images that uh, sort of evoke a certain feeling of chaos, uh, guilt, confusion, and so on and so forth. This is a form of demonic uh, disclosure, if you will, from a Christian point of view, okay? This is not the Neoplatonic point of view. And the angels, the good, uh, uh, the good spirits, do exactly the opposite. They put together your memories in a way that, uh, that will communicate to you uh, something positive. Keep in mind, uh, this is, I didn't touch on this at all, but the discussion about memory and angels. Technically speaking, angels, Thomas Aquinas says in the Summa, do not have memory. Memory is not a faculty that they have. Because memory, as we, we saw, it's very physical. Images are imprinted okay, in, in, in memory. So there are all the discussion of how do angels remember? How can they possibly remember is if, fac if the faculty of memory is not theirs. Okay? And so it's, it's a very interesting, uh, they, they remember through knowledge. They understand. So they put together and they conclude the kind of knowledge that they would have from an act of memory by using their reason, so to speak. If memory teaches you something, and that is sort of the last step of, of a process of experiencing, elaborating, storing, and so on, uh, angels, that's what the way they know. This is the way that Thomas uh, sort of get around the problem of the uh, angel's lack of, of physicality, basically. Oh, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>